You are listening to the Faith Church Podcast. Learn more about our church at faithinchandler.com. We are tracking through the entire life story of Jesus as told by his best friend. We have made our way through the first four chapters. We're going to pick up with chapter five. And I feel like now would be a really good moment to remind you of why we're making our way through the whole Gospel of John, all 21 chapters, Sunday by Sunday, passage by passage. The reason is that John wrote this story. He wrote the life of Jesus out so that we could see who he is from his firsthand eyewitness account and believe in him. And John even says towards the end of the book, in the last verse of chapter 20, John 20, 31, he says, these things have been written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have a life in his name. I put that on the screen for you so you can see that the end there says you might have life in his name. And what is John telling us there? John is not telling us that if we read the book of John, that we'll live longer. John is not telling us that if we read the book of John, we'll have more days. What he's telling us is that we'll find the real substance of life. So this past week, um, I was able to spend three days in Virginia, which is where my parents live. The week before that, uh, Nicole, myself, my kids, all four of us, we were at Camp Jacob. Uh, and so I got to speak to the teens at Camp Jacob, and they have junior camp that runs at the same time. And so Haven was able to attend that, and Lincoln was able to go with us. And so I was able to preach to teenagers uh, through the week, and then the family was able to be together. It was great. And uh, that's in the mountains of Virginia, really close to the Kentucky line. And so I made kind of a disparaging remark about Kentucky two weeks ago, if you remember, and then God sent me through the mountains of Kentucky. Uh, and I was like, wow, this is pretty beautiful. I kind of owe an apology to everybody from Kentucky. And so it, it was beautiful. And, and the play, the camp is just in Virginia. I mean, you just barely cross the line into Virginia. And so after that week of camp, we drove to my parents' house. Now, it is 12 hours from here to my parents' house. It was eight hours from that campground to my parents' house. So like the first hour and a half is just trying to find your way out of the sticks to a road to get there. And so that's what we did on Saturday. Then we had Sunday. We were able to go and worship at Restore Church, which is one of our church plants. And Kevin Bass, who served here for four years, uh, is a part of that. So that was great. And then on Monday, we took the kids to the beach. And on Tuesday, we were able to take the kids on the boat of a friend. A friend there has a boat. And Haven and Lincoln absolutely loved being on the boat, especially when it went fast. And Haven was so enjoying herself um, that at one point, she's laid back, you know, just, just taking in the sights. By the way, that's the Portsmouth shipyard uh, there in the background, Restore Church. That church plant that we support is just at the entrance to that shipyard, so it's just right over there. She looked at me, and she said, Dad, this is the life. <laughs> and I said, I said, well, what do you mean this is the life? What do you mean? She said, this is fun. This is great, especially when the boat goes fast. And I think that typically that's the way that we think about life. We think that life is in the moments of fun, that life is in the moments of ease. And so maybe this past week when you had the holiday of the 4th to celebrate, to be with family, to maybe get out on a boat or to go into uh, the mountains or wherever, or whatever it is that you did, that maybe those are the moments you live for, right? Because we all can agree that there's more to life than work, right? 
The truth is that there's more to life than fun as well. There's more to life than this. And that's what John is talking about in his book. The reason he has written the life story of Jesus is so that we might have life because there's more to life than this. Even if you just came off a vacation and you had an amazing time and you had moments you said, man, this is living, this is the life, or you had those moments that you're typically living for, there's more to life than even that. There's more to life than this. And Jesus said himself in John 10.10, I have come that they might have life and life in abundance or more abundantly. So Jesus says, I've come that they could have life. I have come so that you might have this life that he's speaking of. And so here in John chapter 5, we're going to see yet another story that gives us a picture of who Jesus is, that gives us an idea of what he is about. And by knowing him, we can come to experience this life. And so we're going to read the first 18 verses of John chapter 5. And so if you would start with me in verse 1, we'll follow along. After this, so here's one of those moments where we're just transitioning to the next story. And so after the things that happened in John chapter 4, um, after this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is at Jerusalem by the sheep market a pool, which is called in the Hebrew tongue Bethsaida, having five porches. In these lay a great multitude of impotent folk, of blind, halt, withered, waiting for the moving of the water. Now, the next verse is verse 4, and it may be that if you, perchance, have the English Standard Version with you this morning, that's the version you're reading, we're reading from the King James, maybe that you, on the English Standard Version or the New American Standard, you might see a note here that this is kind of a footnote. And the reason is that some people think, looking back at old manuscripts, that what these next words are kind of like someone has kind of tried to give some explanation. And so in some manuscripts, this is included. There are just a handful of places like this in all of Scripture, and none of them have to do with anything important. And you're going to see here that this is just kind of a parenthetical statement. All right? For an angel went down at certain seasons into the pool and troubled the water. Whosoever then first, after the troubling of the water, stepped in and was made whole of whatsoever disease he had. We feel like that's probably a little bit of a parenthetical statement there. And a certain man was there, which had an infirmity thirty and eight years. And when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had been now a long time in that case, he saith unto him, Wilt thou be made whole? And there's something really important about this. Jesus sees the man lying there and knows that he's been there for a long time. Jesus looks at him and he knows his whole life story. Now, I want you to hear this, okay? I look at you and I look at the faces in the crowd and I know some of you and I know some of you, your story... But a lot of you I don't know. And those of you I do know, I know what you've told me or what you've portrayed to me. When Jesus looks into your life, he sees everything. He knows the whole story. And so he doesn't need to get the background on this man's life. He knows that he's been sitting there for 38 years. So the question that Jesus asks him is not, hey, what happened? The question that Jesus asks him is, wilt thou be made whole? And Jesus looks at you today, and he knows the whole backstory, and he asks the same question. Do you want to be made whole? Verse 7, the impotent man answered him, Sir, I have no man, when the water is troubled, to put me into the pool. But while I am coming, another steppeth down before me. Jesus saith unto him, Rise, take up thy bed, and walk. And immediately the man was made whole. 
and took up his bed and walked, and on the same day was the Sabbath. The Jews therefore said unto him that was cured, It is the Sabbath day. It is not lawful for thee to carry thy bed. Now, if you're not familiar with Old Testament law, it would seem strange to you, but it was a big deal for anybody to do any kind of work on the Sabbath day. And so they see this guy carrying his bed, his mat. Looks like he's moving. Looks like he's doing work on the Sabbath day during a feast. And they're saying, hey, man, this is not cool. What are you doing? Verse 11, he answered them, he that made me whole, the same has said unto me, take up thy bed and walk. And so he says, listen, the reason I'm doing this is because somebody just healed me. I think you're missing the point, right? Like I was paralyzed. I couldn't walk. I'm now walking and carrying a bed. It's a little bit of a bigger deal. And the guy who healed me, he told me to carry my bed. Then they asked him, what man is that which said unto thee, take up thy bed and walk? And he that was healed wist not who it was, for Jesus conveyed himself away, a multitude being in that place. It's crowded. It's the feast. And so Jesus heals him. Before he can really get a whole lot of information from Jesus, Jesus kind of fades back into the crowd. Afterward, Jesus findeth him in the temple and said unto him, Behold, thou art made whole. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come unto thee. The man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus which had made him whole. And therefore did the Jews persecute Jesus and sought to slay him because he had done these things on the Sabbath day. And that should give you a little bit of an idea of how seriously they took the Sabbath day laws. But Jesus answered them, My father worketh hitherto, and I work. Jesus basically says, it's okay for my dad, my father, God, to work on Sunday or the Sabbath day. So I do too. Therefore the Jews sought the more to kill him. Because he had not only broken the Sabbath, but said also that God was his Father, making himself equal with God. Um, I told you earlier that we made our way out of that camp. Camp Jacob is beautiful. It's set in the mountains. I mean, it's just gorgeous. But it is really in the middle of nowhere. Like There is no way to find it unless you are really intentionally trying to get there and you're using a GPS to guide you there. And even then, you might miss it. And so making our way from Camp Jacob, I had to use a GPS. And, and Google Maps and, and, and GPS and all that stuff has really come a long way in the last decade. Um, if you can remember a time when GPS was a thing that you went and you bought and you sat on your dash in the car, there were times that those, those models of GPS, they were, they were kind of the, the, the newest version of that. And taking you through a town, they would sometimes take you through areas that you wouldn't go on purpose. You ever experienced that? There were times that it would cut you through the middle of an industrial park, right? Because it, it, according to the software, that was just the fastest way. There were times that we would be in a town or a city and trying to find our way to the highway, and it would take us through a neighborhood that seemed a little scary. It was a place that you wouldn't go on purpose, especially not at night. When Jesus goes to Jerusalem, he's going there for a feast, it's a gathering of people at the temple to celebrate. And John doesn't give us a whole detail, a lot of details about which feast it is. That's not really the point. The point is where Jesus went. And while most people are getting to Jerusalem, and they're going to the temple, and they're going to see kind of the tourist hotspots, Jesus goes to a place that you would not normally go. So if you had a friend that was coming to visit our area, think about maybe some of the places that you would tell them, hey, while you're here, you definitely have to check out this. You've definitely got to go here, right? 
And then maybe there would be some places that you would tell them, hey, don't go here. Don't go to that place. Jesus goes to the place that we would say, hey, don't go there. It was a pool surrounded by five porches or kind of five big gazebos. And it was a place that probably someone built it originally to be beautiful. It was a park. But someone along the way had told people that, listen, if you, if you are there at the pool and the water is stirred, that's an angel. And that if you get into the water, once the angel has touched the water, you will be healed if you're one of the first people to get in. And so what that meant is that every person who had some type of sickness or disease, a person who was paralyzed or blind or halt, all of these diseases, they would go and they would gather there. And so this pool, this park, this place that had probably intended to be this beautiful location in Jerusalem that you go to, it was surrounded by sick people. It was a place that you typically wouldn't go because it was surrounded by beggars and people who were sick and in need. And our King James English here calls them impotent people. Um, Your New American Standard, ESV, might refer to them as invalids. They were people who were disabled. They were unable to do life on their own. And they've gathered around this place looking for some type of help or healing. And Jesus, when he gets to Jerusalem, this is where he goes. And here's the reason. Jesus goes to the places that we typically avoid because he's looking to reach everyone. In the Gospel of John, what we've seen is we've seen Jesus do a miracle at a wedding, and we've seen him preach in the temple. We've seen, as Pastor Eric did a great job of showing you how he healed this official's son last week, and now he is dealing with the people who are invalids. Before that, in John chapter 4, in the beginning, we see that Jesus deals with this Samaritan woman who has quite a reputation. And what Jesus does is he's constantly going to all of these places and meeting with people, like Nicodemus, the religious leader. And so because Jesus reaches everyone, he's constantly working out to the edges of society. Jesus reaches out to the edges of society because he wants to reach everyone. And so he goes to a place that maybe some of us would avoid. We would stay away from because he wants to get to where the people are in need, get to where the people are broken, get to where the people are who are sick. And it's amazing to me that this passage, it calls these people impotent. I mean, it it literally is saying they're without power. In, In modern vernacular, we use the word invalid. That's maybe some of your modern translations have that. I mean, think about the word impotent means without power. The word invalid means without validity. Jesus goes to a group of people who have no power, they have no status. Goes to a group of people that society considers invalid. They're the people that are constantly mooching on, they're needing. They don't contribute to society, they just take from society. And Jesus reaches out to these edges of society because he reaches everyone. He's here for everyone. And that means that he's here for the addict on Riverside Drive and the woman on the corner of Fairs Avenue and the homeless man under the overpass on Fulton and the addict and criminal in Ward County Jail and the immigrant drowned in the Rio Grande. Every one of these people are created in God's image. Every one of these people, Jesus came to redeem. And so when we say that Jesus came for everyone, 
There are no qualifications to that. There are no limiting statements. There's no, well, Jesus came for everyone except for, or Jesus came for everyone who's like us. He came for everyone. The Samaritan woman, the religious leader, the powerful man, the invalid. He comes for all of us. And what happens for us many times is we often miss the people who are desperately in need because we're so focused on authority and power and control. And that's what happens when this man gets to the temple. This man gets to the temple, and he's carrying his bed, and the priests are upset because it's the Sabbath. And earlier, we kind of laughed at, hey, they really missed the point. I mean, this guy was paralyzed. Jesus healed him. And now they're upset because he's carrying his bed on Sunday. Now, for us, this is not a big deal because we don't really worry about keeping Sunday holy. We don't even have blue laws anymore. How many of you remember blue laws? Do you even know what those are? Blue laws were there were stores that couldn't be open on Sunday. Blue laws that you could only be open if you met special qualifications. There had to be so many gas stations and, and medical places and places you could get medicine on Sundays. And those just constantly expanded. And most recently here in Indiana, we saw one of the final remainders of blue laws fall off the books when it was now okay to buy alcohol on Sunday. This is just not something that's appreciated in our culture anymore. It's not something that we're worried about. But for these people, it was a really big deal. What I want you to see is that what Jesus has done here is he set up a situation where he can push back on their feelings of control and authority. You see, every miracle was a sign, Jesus showing his power and authority. Every miracle was this way that he was showing people, I am the son of God. And there were times that Jesus would heal someone and he would say, don't tell anybody. There were times that Jesus would do a miracle and the only people that knew about it were his disciples. The miracle at the wedding in John chapter 2 is one of those examples. But then there were other times that Jesus would heal somebody and he would say, go show yourself to the priest. Go and tell your family and friends. And here, when Jesus speaks to this man, he says, rise, take up thy bed and walk. And Jesus knows what he's doing. Jesus did not say, oh, is it is it Sabbath day? I just, I mean, we had a holiday this week and so I have just been, I've totally lost track of what day of the week it is. No, he knew it was the Sabbath. And he tells this man, rise and take up your bed and walk. And it was to be a demonstration of just how healed this man was, that he could physically pick up his bed and take it. But it was also, he was was engaging these priests. And so when they say, who told you that you should take up your bed? They're, They're doing some investigation. They're wanting to find out why is there a man during the feast carrying his bed on the Sabbath day? And this is really clear that Jesus has kind of engaged in this conflict on purpose with them in verse 17 when he says, my father works hither too. Jesus says, God, God's allowed to work on Sunday, right? I am God. I can do this because of who I am. And he's showing them, he's demonstrating to them that he has the power and authority to do this. And what Jesus is doing is he's challenging their, their idea of power and control. He's challenging their mirage, their imagination that they're in control. That's what they think. They think, hey, listen, this guy's carrying his bed. We're going to show him. Now, today in our culture, we are not as concerned with Sabbath laws, but there are a whole bunch of other things that we're really concerned about. 
And we're comfortable with Jesus as long as he didn't challenge any of our ideas on sexual morality or politics. But if Jesus says something in Scripture that kind of goes against what our presidential preference or our political preferences are, we don't really like that. And if you follow Jesus, there will be times that you will find yourself out of step with the the majority. There will be times that you find yourself out of step with your political party that you've been a part of ever since you were a kid because that was what grandma was and you're going to be a Democrat like grandma was a Democrat or you're going to be a Republican just like dad was a Republican. There are going to be some times that Jesus pushes back on that and says, "That's that's not a Jesus concept. That's not a Jesus idea. And we've got to be willing to say, yeah, I know what most people say about that, but I'm following what Jesus says about that. I know that it's culturally normal to accept these sins today. I know that it's culturally normal for people to be upset about these things today, but I'm following Jesus, what he has to say. And in Jesus' day, he was considered a liberal because he was setting aside these conservative laws about the Sabbath that had been in place for years. And today, in our culture today, he's seen as old-fashioned and stodgy and conservative and backward. And there may be a culture that comes after ours that sees Jesus as liberal again. But no matter the culture, no matter the era, what defines what is right is Jesus because he's God's son. And that's what he's saying to them. He's saying God is able to work on Sunday because he has the authority and he's God and so can I. So can I. So Jesus will challenge your notions of power and control. And by the way, he'll often do this through opportunities to serve the least of these, those around us who are struggling, like these people that were gathered around this pool. He'll also do it by defying our desires and the things that we want, and the things that our nature pulls us toward. By saying that is not holy, that is not good, that is not healthy for you. And if Jesus has never done that for you, if he has never challenged your ideas or your behavior, if he's never convicted you over something that you've been holding on to or something you're engaged in or some ideology you're holding on to, you're not following Jesus. You're following your own ideas. You're only following Jesus as it fits within your ideology. Jesus is greater than us. He is God Almighty. He is the creator of the universe. He is God in the flesh. And so he supersedes us. And if there's never a moment in your life that says, you know what, I want to do this, but Jesus says this, so I need to go the way that Jesus goes, you're not following Jesus. You're just asking him to tag along with the life that you want to live. We are God's conception. We are God's creation. He is not our creation. We submit to him. He does not submit to us. So we cannot read the Bible and say, you know what, Jesus, I know that that was kind of the thing back then, but today, that's we're cool with that now, Jesus, so you need to get in line. Jesus does not get in line with us. He does not get in line with our culture. We need to get in line with him. We're following him. I love my wife. We get along great. You know what? She's not my conception. She's her own person. You know what that means? Don't tell anybody. Sometimes we disagree. 
I have a five-year-old son. He is adorable. He is hilarious. He's also wrong about a lot of stuff. <laughs> if, if I said, you know what, Lincoln, you're in charge. I'm going to follow you. We'd never go to bed. We'd have cookies for every meal. We'd watch Pokemon for eight hours a day. And we'd go swimming when it was 40 degrees outside. Because he's five. He's five. And so there are these moments that I, as his parent, have to say, no, we're not going to do that. It's hilarious that you want to do that. I mean, it's cute, but no, we're not going to do that. By the way, some of you, you don't have those conversations with your kid, and they don't have a parent. You're just like, hey, whatever you want to do, you're a free spirit. God's called you to be a parent, and parent's a verb. There's times you've got to step in and say, no, we're not going to do that. No, we're not going to stay up. No, we're not going to eat that. No, we're not going to go there. No, we're not going to act that way. And there are times that Jesus steps in and he says, nope, no, I am God. I am creator. I know what is best for you. And there are times that Lincoln thinks I am just here to ruin his fun. One of his favorite phrases is, this is the worst day ever. And we were just on vacation and he uttered that many times. I'm like, what are you talking? We just left the beach. We were at the beach. It's the worst day ever. He didn't want to leave yet. And so his mind, I'm there ruining his fun. But I'm trying to do what is good for him, what is best for him. And there are times where we think, man, God is just ruining our good time. And he's saying, no, I know what is best for you. I know what is good for you. So on Wednesday, we made the drive back from Virginia Beach to here. It's a 12-hour drive. And I think that on this drive back, it's the most that Nicole and I have swapped back and forth driving. Because I just can't hang like I used to. I'm old, guys. I'm old. I cannot drive as long as I used to. And so, we, like, all right, can, or can you drive? I know I've been driving for like 35 minutes, but can you drive, you know, just back and forth? You know what I was thinking? That's a lot how we, that's kind of like how we do life with Jesus. Except instead of getting tired of being in the driver's seat, we get tired of riding shotgun. Because so we've said, Jesus, I'm going to follow you. I'm going to let you take the wheel. I'm going to let you lead. But then we get our tax check. And we're like, hey, Jesus, I'm going to drive for a little bit, okay? You, you, you ride shotgun. Or we mess that up and we say, okay, Jesus, yeah, I blew all that money. Um, you, you should probably drive for a while. And we get back in the passenger seat. And then somebody says something that kind of slights us and it hurts our feelings. And we say, Jesus, get in the back seat, maybe cover your ears for a minute. I'm going to drive. And then it's a holiday weekend, and we say, Jesus, why don't you get out here, and I'll, maybe I'll swing back by and pick you up after the weekend. And there are times in our life we recognize we've made an absolute mess of things. And Jesus needs to be the one who is leading. He needs to be the one at the wheel. And so what Jesus is saying to the priests here, what he's doing when he, when he sends this guy past the temple carrying his bed, he's, he's saying, I'm going to show you that I am the Son of God. That I have the power and the authority to do these things. I'm going to demonstrate that to you. Some of you, you've come to Jesus because there have been moments in your life that you felt totally powerless, completely out of control. And He has demonstrated to you that He knows best how to lead you and guide you. So Jesus demonstrates that He has total power, total authority, 
by healing this man and telling him to pick up his bed on the Sabbath day. So what does Jesus do with this power and authority? Did you notice what happened? He went and he found that man in the temple. So Jesus had healed him and kind of slipped away. But Jesus wasn't forgetting him or neglecting him. Jesus had a point. Jesus was going to lead him towards spiritual health. And when Jesus is leading your life, when Jesus is the wheel, when he is in the driver's seat, he will always lead you to spiritual health. That's always where he'll take you. Jesus demonstrates his power and his authority, and he goes and he finds this man in verse 14. Look at verse 14 with me, okay? Afterward, Jesus findeth him in the temple and said unto him, Behold, thou art made whole. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come unto thee. Jesus had the power to heal this man who had been sick for 38 years. Someone who had been an invalid for 38 years, Jesus was able to tell him to get up and walk like it was nothing. But when Jesus goes searching for him, and he finds him, he says, Behold, you have been made whole. Now sin no more, lest something else worse happens to you. What's he talking about? Jesus came and he healed people physically. And he fed them with food. He fed the hungry. But what he most desperately wanted was to heal our spiritual brokenness. That's what he came here for. That's the reason he came. And so he seeks this man out to to, to encourage him to go and sin no more. If Jesus had come and he'd only only helped people physically and fed them when they were hungry and done nothing for them spiritually, he'd be like a cancer doctor who gives out Tylenol and candy but never does chemotherapy or radiation. He would make people feel good for the moment they were there, and then let them die. 38 years sounds like a really long time to be paralyzed or invalid. But in light of eternity, 38 years is nothing. And our time here on earth is just a blip on our timeline of existence. And I know that it seems backwards to you, but it would be better to have a miserable existence here and live with God forever in heaven than to have a wonderful existence here, to live what many people call the life here, and then spend eternity separated from God in a place called hell. He came healing their physical needs to demonstrate that he had the power and the authority to heal their spiritual needs. That was his whole purpose. That was his whole point. And John has given us the life story of Jesus that includes only seven of his dozens of miracles because the whole point is not Jesus healing you physically, but him restoring you spiritually. That's what it's all about. And so Jesus goes looking for this man to tell him, Go and sin no more, lest something worse, the judgment that is coming, something far worse than your illness, afflict you. The judgment for your sin. Jesus sought this man out at the pool of Bethsaida, and then he seeks him out of the temple. And friend, I want you to know that God has been seeking you out. And it may be that you think that you finally found God. He has been searching for you all along. He has been seeking for you. 
And when you come to know him, you can look back with this new perspective and see all these times that he saved your life. And I'm not exaggerating. He literally saved your life and gave you another day of grace, another opportunity to come to know him. And all of those moments were preparing for this moment where you can be healed of your spiritual brokenness. So what's your spiritual brokenness? What's our spiritual brokenness? The brokenness that Jesus came to heal is our spiritual brokenness, and that is our sin. That's our sin. So that's the reason that Jesus says to him, go and sin no more. How can Jesus tell him that? How can Jesus tell him to go and sin no more? Imagine if you came in today and I said, hey man, the way to get to heaven is just never do anything else wrong. I think we're going to mess that up, right? I don't, I don't think I'm going to make it 24 hours. I think I'm going to mess that up. So how can Jesus say to this man, go and sin no more? Jesus is able to say this to this man because Jesus is also the one who's able to say, take up thy bed and walk. He's able to heal the physical brokenness and also able to heal the spiritual brokenness. Jesus telling this man to take up his bed and walk, it's, it's, a, it's very similar to another story that Luke tells us. And I love the story in Luke because it's a guy who's also an invalid and his four friends want him to be healed, so they bring him to Jesus. They get to where Jesus is at in this house, and it's so crowded they can't get in to see Jesus. So they say, we're going to go up on the roof, and we'll lower him down at Jesus' feet. And that's what they do. They literally go up on the roof of this house and set him down through the roof before the feet of Jesus. And Jesus, seeing his faith, says to him, your sins are forgiven. And everybody's aghast. Did he just tell him his sins are forgiven? And Luke 23, 5 tells us this. I'm going to show you that on the screen. What is easier to say? Thy sins be forgiven or rise up and walk. Jesus is saying, you can't do either. I can do both. You can't tell a person who's paralyzed to just get up and walk, but I can. I can do that. And because I have that power and authority, it's a demonstration of the fact that I can say, go and sin no more. I can empower you to live a grace-filled life. I can forgive you of your sin. I can wipe the slate clean. Only Jesus can do that. Only Jesus. Jesus alone can do that. And so it may be that you're here and you're, you're, you're coming to church and you're learning about Jesus because you know that your life is a mess and you need something to help you out. But friend, let me encourage you, don't stop at superstition. Don't stop short of having a Savior. Give your life over to Him. He is the one that can heal your spiritual brokenness. He alone and all of these miracles that he did were to show that he had the power and the authority to do and say these things because he is God's own son. Come in the flesh to die a death that all of us deserved after living a life that none of us could live and then resurrecting, conquering death to demonstrate that he has the power over death, hell, the grave, sin, your spiritual brokenness, and mine. So the, the question that really matters is, are you following Jesus? Are you following Christ? Nothing else matters. Are you following Him? I'm not asking you, are you bringing Him along for the ride? Are you following Him? Is He in the driver's seat? Or is He just a bumper sticker on the car? Have you given Him the wheel? Or is He just along for the ride? Are you picking them up when you need them and dropping them off when you're tired? 
Are you following him? Why don't you bow your heads with me?